Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two Footed Podcast. It is Wednesday, the 14th of July. We're brought to you, as always, by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access American Netflix. Also keeps your data safe. Check out LibertyShield.com. Use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks, slightly different show today. I have a guest for the first time in a while. Somebody's come on to talk to me. So Ryan Baldy, author of Football's Next Big Thing and the upcoming book, Dream Factory. Ryan, how are you? I'm good, thank you, mate. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. The Euros are over. They were... I think a very successful Euros in many ways. I think it's one of the better international tournaments that we've seen in recent years. And I suppose the the interest held quite long because obviously England got to the final. And with it almost being a tournament stage in England because so many of the games were at Wembley or even at at Hamden, there was just a, a nice feel to the tournament, a real feel that you could attach yourself to. What did you think of the Euros? as a whole, and then we'll get into the England stuff. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it tremendously. I, I echo everything you've said. I think um, I felt a bit of a, an apathy or a, or a disconnect with international football for the last few years, but um, the, yeah, this tournament dragged me right in. I, I do think, like you say, even though um, I didn't personally go to any of the games, just just knowing that it's kind of on the doorstep and that it's close and um, has that kind of home feel almost uh, a kind of a, a, a good chunk of the tournament on, on home soil does really help you get into it I think and yeah I, I yeah I was fully fully in uh, fully bought into it and really enjoyed every minute I have to say credit to England where it's due they do put on a hell of a tournament they know how to host a tournament like you look back at Euro 96 I, I maintain it's the best Euros that we've had England has 
great infrastructure, great stadiums. Now, this obviously was only Wembley, but there is great potential for, for England or even England, Scotland and Wales together to host a World Cup or to get another European Championships. They do have the stadium, they have the infrastructure, they have the transport links, and most importantly, they have the interest. They have people that want to go and watch good quality football. And I do think this bodes well for the future of England maybe getting a World Cup or maybe a, a Euros exclusively to themselves again. Yeah, um, I, I do wonder whether the scenes that we saw last night might count against any bid. Um, yeah. As much for the kind of, it seemed a, a failing of policing and, and, and security as, as much for the, the aggression of the fans. I think that would be what might, might put FIFA and the, the, the people who make these decisions might put them off when they look at the fact that so many fans were able to storm what seemed to be just you know one or two rings of of security, um, of you know, low-paid stewards. You don't expect them to put their safety on the line and get no. in front of a of course, crashing fans crashing towards them. So yeah, I mean, just you know, so many of these clips, you didn't really see much of it, much of a police presence. I wasn't there, so I can't really say for sure whether there was adequate policing. But you know, from everything we saw, it appears there wasn't. So I, that, that I guess would count against uh, England's chances of a, of a hosting a major tournament anytime soon. That is a fair point, and I mean, we did see. Um, Miguel Delaney, who's obviously one of the more high-profile journalists in the country, I think Melissa Reddy was tweeting about it as well. And they were they were there, so they they were kind of relaying their experiences. Now, look, it's 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 a bad scene, and you don't want unticketed fans turning up. You're right; there didn't seem to be an adequate police presence, at least from the the clips that we saw. They didn't show a whole lot of footage of outside and what it looked like. Whether there was adequate police outside or not, I don't know. But like you say, lowly paid stewards inside, they won't and they shouldn't put their safety at risk. On the flip side, though, at least at least there was no major trouble. There doesn't seem to be been any major incidents. And while it may have made some people a little bit uncomfortable, at least it all seemed to go off generally without any major flashpoints. Um, and look... It's hard to criticise. The fans should know better, but it is hard to criticise people when it's the first opportunity to see your team in a final in your lifetime and it's on home soil. I mean, I'm not excusing them, but I can kind of see why so many people were desperate to get in. And a lot of people were looking at Wembley and saying, right, it's a 90,000-seater capacity. the 65,000 people, 25,000 empty seats. Surely to God I can get one of them. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them seem to take up seats that were already occupied by ticket-holding fans, and, and that's not on. And yeah, you're probably right, that will count against them, but England, I think, have done well over the years to repair their reputation. I think the fans have done quite well to repair their reputation. It's just been louts. There wasn't major trouble during these Euros, and that's a good sign. Yeah, for sure. And, and um, like you said, I... I... I echo what you what you said about Euro '96. I'm very nostalgic for that tournament. It was a, a key point in my football fandom. Um, I remember it vividly, and uh, I have really, really fond memories of, of that tournament. Always kind of hold it dear as, as a kind of gold standard, even though you mm. know we look back at it and the, at the stats and the goals per games and everything was quite low. But um, as you know, as a, a quality um, tournament on, on the doorstep, it was it was really special, and it, it felt like a real moment in time back then. Um, so it would be, yeah, it'd be. It'd be It'd be great to have something like that again. I guess what what any uh, England or combined bid would have to demonstrate was that the security or lack thereof uh, that we saw the other night had been 
uh, robust and you know, they learned their lessons. And I think one of the issues seemed to be that um, I've heard people saying for most sort of major stadiums, because uh, a lot of them, a lot of the major stadiums around Europe are, are, are situated outside of the city, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, they're usually kind of on their own in, in a bit of uh, um, reclaimed wasteland or something on the outskirts of a city. Whereas Wembley, um, it, it's so built up around it, it's difficult to kind of cordon off great swathes of, of the land around it and, and stop people. You know, having you could yeah, you could have three or four ticket checks within a, a kilometre of a ground at, at some of the European big stadiums, but that's not really possible at Wembley. So I guess they've got to find a solution to that. But um, yeah, I mean, if they can do that and demonstrate that they've got proper protocols in place this time, that they have learned their lessons, then there's definitely um, many reasons why why tournament in England, or like I said, a combined bid with Wales or Scotland, whatever it might be. Um, on the 30, uh, the uh, 100th anniversary of the World Cup, perhaps in 2030, would be a real, real attraction. Mm, I agree. So before we went live, we were talking all fair about you know this England team, and you were saying that you, this is an England squad that you do like. It's got a lot of likable players, and there's a real feeling of hope around this England squad. And and it's very hard, even as someone that doesn't follow England, obviously for obvious reasons. It's very hard not to look at this England squad and say the under-21 squad and think there's real promise here. There's really something special brewing here. Now, I don't know if Southgate is the right manager. I thought his tactics in the final were very negative and maybe cost England. But in terms of the squad he has available, in terms of what he picked, what he left behind, and those in the under-21s who are developing, it really is an exciting time for the England, England national team, which if you'd said that to somebody in 2016 when they were going out against Iceland, managed by Roy Hodgson, they probably would have laughed at you. Yeah, exactly. Um, I had a lot of confidence in England going into this tournament based on all those factors you said, all, all the great young talent. And uh, yeah, th- this team isn't isn't peaking yet. This is, this is a, a squad who, when you look at, like you said, the players coming through and the players already there, um, they're a good few years away from reaching any kind of peak. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's a really positive sign that at this stage of, of the development of so many of these young players, they've already kind of got the experience of playing in, in a final and being around a major tournament under their belt and really served them, served them well. So, yeah, when you think about guys who were kind of on the periphery at this tournament, like so Sancho and Foden, who didn't get a huge amount of game time, um, of course, Saka played quite a lot, but um, mm. he's, he's only 19 as well. Uh, of course, Trent Alexander-Arnold had to pull out injured. He's another one who's going to come in. Rashford's still a young player. Uh, and, and Jude Bellingham, he might already be our best central midfield player. Just I think, yeah. were, were, were it not for the fact that he's only 18, I think that, 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 that is the only reason I can see for him not to have played more than he did. Um, and I thought he would have been a great addition into the, into the midfield yesterday to try and wrest some control when, when Italy were taken over because... We've seen for Dortmund, he can cope with the physical side of the game and he's, he's, he's great at playing under pressure when, when England was struggling to play out and struggling to get a foothold in the game when Italy started to press. I um, thought he was the player to bring on when Rice was going off. Yeah, I, I Henderson, thought so too. Henderson isn't fit. Like, let's be, let's be fair, he's not fit. Mm-hmm. There's no way he's fully fit. He hasn't played a real game of football since February, like a full game. And Bellingham, Bellingham has that energy. He has that useful exuberance. And he's just a force moving mm-hmm. forward. And look, not to criticise, Declan Rice I thought was excellent yesterday. Uh, you know, I, I thought yeah. he was brought off because he was exhausted. I thought Calvin Phillips throughout the tournament grew into 
if not a nailed on first choice player for England, somebody that is absolutely going to be in every England squad moving forward. Yeah. What a what a tournament for him. What a, what a rise up he's had over the last few years. You've obviously got Henderson brings that experience to the group. England have struggled, say, for the last decade to to find the right balance in midfield because the Gerard Lampard skulls thing never really worked, and then those players all aged out. England haven't had great central midfielders over the last 10 years. Henderson's probably the best of them. But you look at it now and you think, right, Phillips is 25. There's more to come from him. He's gotten better each year under Bielsa. He went up again a level in this tournament. Declan Rice is 22. He's got levels and levels to go up. And like you said, Bellingham is 18. Mm. To have these three, that is massively exciting for England in the midfield area where they've lost a lot of games over the years. And we saw with the great Spain team and with this Italian team that just won the Euros, how important it is to have a great midfield on the international stage. Yeah, I think that was kind of being, um, <clears throat> like you said, the, the guys in there perform really well and, and they've got levels to go. And I think that is the, the area um, kind of most ripe for improvement in a single team because um there were times, I think, when when some, when they're put under some pressure, keeping hold of the ball has been a little bit of a difficulty. It's been that way for England throughout the almost throughout the history of the game. It seems being able to kind of control the game through the midfield and get a foot on the ball. I thought that England have done a, a pretty good job of controlling the game without the ball at times in this tournament. Um, some really kind of smart uh, pressing patterns that we've seen and things mm. like that, and, and an ability to manage the game somewhat through that. Um, but I think there were times in yesterday's game when it just kind of we saw a lot of a lot of the, a lot of the time the uh, like Harry Maguire and Stones having to go along um, when they didn't really want to. Um, but I think we, you know the, the more confident we see Declan Rice get on the ball and he's improving all the time. He's already kind of reached a level that I I didn't see in him. I'll be perfectly honest, he's already kind of eclipsed what what I thought was his level in terms of his ability on the ball. And he just seems to be getting better. And more confident, and then yeah, Bellingham. I imagine. Um, I mean, he'll still only be nine, well, nineteen by the, by the next tournament. But um, I'd be shocked if he's not one of the starting players, um, just because of his his skill set and his ability to take the ball under pressure. Um, and just yeah, the mentality he's already shown to be playing Champions League football um, at such a young age and to be thriving on the stage he's thriving under. So yeah, I, I think you know probably the biggest area, like I said, the biggest area right for improvement. Um, you can just see quite easily where that growth is going to come from. And it, it looks like it can come really quickly too, just, just based on the development we've seen of the, those three players you mentioned. And another option that's going to be there for that midfield, in particular if Southgate wants to play a midfield three, will be Mason Mount, who maybe didn't have the best of tournaments. He had a couple of quiet games, obviously was forced to miss a game after Billy Gilmore got COVID. And strangely, Mount and Chilwell were forced to miss a game but none of the Scottish players uh, had any issues. That was, that I thought was weird. But Mount, the last two seasons at Chelsea has been one of their most important players. He has really stepped up a level. He's another option in that midfield. And you mentioned the pressing, and he is key to that. He's very good off the ball. And the on-ball side of his game has really come on as well. England yeah. are looking at a, at a situation to go into the next World Cup. If Southgate wants to play a 4-3-3, to have a Bellingham, Rice, Mount, midfield three, all of them, you know, 19, they'll be 19, 23 and 23. Kids still. Yeah. And then Phillips and Henderson for depth. That's much stronger than anything England could have called on in prior years. 
No, for sure. And it's a better balance than I've ever had. The top end talent might have been uh, better in, in the mm. in the skulls, uh, Gerard Lampard here. But like you said, they, they just didn't fit together. There was no way of piecing that puzzle together in a way that was that was workable. Um, so it was kind of a rotating cast of left midfielders and defensive midfielders. Um, but here you can see multiple ways that that, that combination can work. And I think that's the key to Rice's uh, so Mount's um, Mount's uh, importance to this team. That's why Southgate relies on him so much because, like you said, he's so key to the pressing. He's such an intelligent player off the ball um, I think he doesn't get many plaudits I saw a lot of criticism of him last night and yeah he didn't have his best game um, but at the same time I think a lot of his best work is done in the shadows almost I think when he's at his best you don't you don't really notice him a huge amount because um, his the work he does is fairly simple but he connects the dots um, yeah he helps he, he makes players around him better and I think he's really key to what Sadie has wanted to do at times in this tournament because of his versatility and because of his way because of the way he allows England to play off the ball as much as on the ball so if you, you could play him in, as part of a front three in the 3-4-3 the three, three and have him off the ball make it uh, a central midfield three when you're out of possession and, and put some pressure on the players in the middle of the park and limit their space that's the kind of thing he's he's perfectly adapted to because he can play anywhere across that front line and he can play deeper and he's the sort of guy who if you give him a set of instructions you know exactly what you're going to get from him you know he's going to follow them to the letter he might not always set the world on fire he probably doesn't score or assist as much as we might like like to see from him but uh, I think, yeah, like the work he does is very important, even if it's not always headline crap. I think what he can become in a midfield three is like a more attacking version of Ginny Wijnaldum for Liverpool. Someone that doesn't grab the headlines, doesn't always jump out at you, but fills in the blanks. Mm. So he he fills the gaps whenever he can lead the press, but he can also be that secondary presser who cuts the passing lane or who drops in if someone else is pressed, he drops in to take their spot, sees the game quickly, reacts to it quickly and fills in the gaps. And that's, it's not a, an exciting role. It's not the role he might've dreamed up or dreamed of doing when he was growing up, but it's a very important role. And Liverpool are going to miss Wijnaldum massively this season. Chelsea miss uh, Mount massively when he doesn't play. And I think England do as well. And even though I didn't think he was great last night, I think moving forward, he'll be a big part of it. This, the attacking talent is 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 the obvious area to to look at. England are, I mean, it's 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 an embarrassment of riches, it really is. Like the number of options Southgate has in this squad and young options as well, the likes of Foden, Saka, Sancho, Rashford, Calvert Lewin. We know about Grealish, we know about Sterling, we know about Kane, but these younger players, they are sensational talents. Mason Greenwood is another one wasn't in the squad. Greenwood is, I think he's going to be a superstar. I think he's awesome. It's really, really exciting what England could become in attack. Now, you'd wonder if maybe the best days of those players will come after Harry Kane has has moved on from the team. Mm-hmm. But because they'll be a bit more fluid then once he's out and you'll have more, more movement and whatever. But I don't ever remember England. And England back in the 90s had great strikers sharing them Shearer, Ferdinand, Cole, etc., Collymore, Fowler, etc. But I don't know that they've ever had this level of all-round talent, wingers and strikers. No, I completely agree. Um, uh, this is a discussion I've been having with friends as well. There have been great crops of attacking players for England before, like the, the strikers you mentioned. Where there was that 
really strange abundance of number nines in the mid nineties. When you look back on it, it's just crazy. Like people like Andy Cole barely getting a sniff when when it comes to tournaments after just winning a treble with United or something like that. Um, so so Rich was a talent at, at striker back then. But like you said, they were they were all all much of a muchness in many ways. Sheringham was kind of the one who could drop in, but but, but the rest of them are all, all really competing with Alan Shearer for that number nine spot. Um, but here you've got guys who are, who are versatile who are all bring something slightly different to the plate. Um, and I don't think I've ever seen any, anything quite like this in terms of in terms of the depth of the quality and the variety they're able to offer. It's, yeah, it's tremendously exciting. Um, it's that that 2000 generation, the, the the boys as they were then, who won the Under-17 World Cup a few years ago. Uh, I mean, even looking back at, at, at that tournament, um, you know, Sancho was recalled by, by Borussia Dortmund after the group stages because he yeah. was already kind of getting quite important to what they were doing there. But the team that went on to win it, I guess um, you might have said that the, the players with the highest seed and looking at looking at it back then were might have been uh, Callum Hudson Odoi, who's still one who hasn't yeah. quite come through to that level. I know he's had the Achilles injury, which is which is one of the more devastating injuries you can oh, face. Exactly. I, I, he, if if um, he had to put money on any one of those players becoming a superstar at 17, I would, I'd have said Hudson Ladoy would be the one. And of course, you had Brewster coming through and scoring all the goals that tournament. He's not quite delivered, but still, all the talent from that age group that's come behind him. Foden's really come through. We see Sancho now as well. I think uh, I do wonder if kind of being more visible now at United in terms of. Um, Playing in England and being able to kind of watch him more regularly from the, from Southgate and his staff, uh, that he might become more more dependent upon. I'd hope so because I think um, the, the the amount to which he was underused at this tournament was one of the one of um, one of the negative aspects. I'd say there aren't too many criticisms I'd have of the work that Southgate has done, but I would have liked to have seen more of Sancho. Um, there's a lot of clamour for Jack Grealish, um, but. Uh, Sancho could have been just as big a player for me, I think, uh, had he been given more of a shout. And yeah, I think he will be going forward because he's still only 21. And yeah, and like you said about Mason Greenwood, a, a tremendous talent there as well. And they just seem to keep coming and coming. And it's, it's, um, it, it's, I'm struggling to remember a time where it was like this, where there was such a great stream of young English players coming through. Um, so looking ahead, even beyond 2022 World Cup, um, mm. it, it, these players are going to peak after that. It's... It's a really exciting time, and you know if things are managed well, and, and the players are, are developed in the right way, and the, the formula is found for how to piece them all together. Then there's, the, the sky's the limit, really. Oh, it absolutely is, and and you're right. It's probably going to be 2026 before we see the best of of this group of players. And it's not just in attack; it's not just in midfield. They've got a bunch of options at right back: Trent, Reese, James, Max, Aaron's. Uh, Lamptey, I think James Justin is a is a, qu- a quality player at Leicester. Um, it's a, it's a great crop of right backs. There's a good crop of left backs. Obviously headed up by by Luke Shaw. He's a bit older, obviously 26, but still only 26. Um, Chilwell is obviously you know established in the Premier League. 50 million move last summer. One of the better left backs in the league. You've got I think Brandon Williams of United probably ends up as a excuse me as a left back. Even though he's right-footed, I think he's better on the left. Uh, the young kid at, at Leicester, whose name escapes me, is impressive as well. Like There's quality coming through. In centre-back, you've got Tamore, you've got Godfrey, you've got Gwehi, you've got Esri Konza, who I thought was very unfortunate not to go to this tournament, especially considering 
you know, Tyron Mings went and Konza carried him up and down the field at Villa Park every week. <laughs> the only area I'm not sure on is goalkeeper. Because Pickford, Pickford had a good tournament, there's no question. But he is a flawed goalkeeper. I think Sam Johnston's a solid keeper. He had a, he's a flawed keeper. Ramsdale has potential, but for two years in a row has been the worst keeper in the Premier League. Behind that, there's Freddie Woodman, um, there's Josef Bercic at uh, Stoke. I don't really see the big, definite prospect coming through in goal. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the one you point to and say, he's the future England number one. Like, remember when Butland was coming through, pre-injury, Butland was going to be, he was yeah. going to replace Joe Hart, and that was it. There isn't one I don't see anyway. Now, again, a lot of people watch a lot more youth football than me. I don't see that there's one coming through. That'll be here in time for the next few tournaments. Yeah, I suppose the one that you might look at based on the kind of platform he has already at the moment might be um, Dean Henderson. Um, But uh, I do wonder whether his eventual landing spot will be just a level below where he is now. Um, I'm not sure that he will will be the the elite of the elite. but I think we've seen you, you can get by without if you know if you've got mm. such good talent elsewhere on the pitch. You just kind of want solidity from your goalkeeper. They don't have to be spectacular. You just want them to not not make ricks. Um, which is to his credit, um, I've, I haven't been picked for his biggest biggest fan over the years. But this is two tournaments in a row now where he's performed really well um, and not you know not had some of the blunders that we've seen. Uh, him make for Everton over the last couple of years. Um, by all accounts, in the last six months or so, he's been he's been much improved. Um, and I did find it interesting to to learn that he'd been working with a psychologist. I know it's easy to kind of roll your eyes when you hear things like that, and perhaps too much is attributed to things like that at times. But um, given his very particular struggles in the past of being one of these people, a bit like Joe Hart, who seemed to get overhyped for games and be in his own head a little bit too much. Um, to learn that he he'd been working on that, he'd he'd identified that as something that he can improve on, and it seems to seems to have been working for him. He seems a a calmer presence back there now. He seems to not kind of um, carry those those moments with him when he does have a lapse. I think there were a couple of clearances, weren't there, in the Ukraine game that he fluffed a little bit, but um, he managed to put it to one side. I, I can't remember who said it, but I heard it recently somebody say to be to be a goalkeeper, you've got to have a memory like a goldfish. You've got to be able mm. to just forget what happened a few seconds before if you've made a mistake and you know it's got it's got to be completely out of your head and you've got to get your focus back on it I think that's kind of been one of um, Pickford's issues in the past um but you know just judging on what we've seen over this summer I think he I think he did really well I thought he was very unfortunate in the final um because he made a couple of really good saves um not least in, in the seconds before Bonucci's goal he made a really good save to to push that, that I don't remember who shot it was. He pushed onto the post. I don't think. I think really good reaction. Yeah. So that's it. And then Benucci followed in, and, and then to, to save a couple of penalties in the shootout, uh, one from Jorginho, who um, makes a fool of many a goalkeeper with that penalty technique. Um, yeah, I just thought he was really unfortunate, and I think um, he deserves he deserves credit. I think uh, he's he would have been the weakness that a lot of people would have pointed to before the tournament. He certainly would have been the player I'd have had the least confidence. Uh, in going into it, uh, but yeah, I've, I've been impressed. But like mm. we said, if you're looking at the next generation who's coming up behind him, um, 
it doesn't seem as like that elite level prospect out there, but, but perhaps if England can just identify who's going to be their most most solid, who's going to be the guy who can imbue a bit of confidence into the back line without being necessarily a prime David De Gea level shot stopper or a Manuel Neuer level of uh, anticipation and sweeping up behind the back line, it's just someone who's going to do the basics. And based on the amount of talent around a, around the goalkeeper, they, they might just be okay. Yeah, I mean, if the goalkeeper can be a good shot stopper who doesn't make big errors, isn't going to hurt the team, then with the talent England they're going to have... I mean, look, France won a World Cup with Hugo Lloris, who is a very good goalkeeper, but he was never a world-class goalkeeper, never one of the very, very best. So it can be done. Um, I I think Henderson, you're right, I think Henderson probably is the one, but you're 100% right on Pickford. Vastly improved for England than what we've normally seen from Everton. I think the psychology thing is is a big factor. And I know for a fact that Liverpool over the years have brought in a number of different sports psychologists to work with individuals and with the unit. So it's obviously something that's becoming more and more uh, important in the game or that managers are seeing as potential to give you a little bit of an edge. Yeah, it's something Sadkate is very big on as well. He's very big on um, culture and, and mm. uh, psychology. He brings in a lot of outside help. Um, so whether he's had an influence... Cause, I think we've seen a similar thing with John Stones as well. It's two tournaments in a row now where Stones has been excellent, um, where um, you know you probably have a little less confidence in him at, at club level, where he's uh, always had a better defender next to him uh, for the most part with, with the Port a couple of seasons ago and Diaz last season. Um, but again, he, he was he was really good for England. Um, he was. So, the the yeah, partnership with him and Maguire works well. They seem to have a good understanding. Like. They're both. I mean, what? Maguire's twenty-seven. Maguire's twenty-eight, and Stones is twenty-seven. So you would assume they will go to the World Cup as the first choice pair. They may well go to the next Euros as the first choice pair. But so what Southgate needs to do now is he needs to figure out what's coming behind them. Who who am I going to build up so that when they start to either break down or they're injured or whatever, who do I have coming through? What pair do I have? Because I think at centre-back, it's all about pairing. You look at Benucci and Cialini, both of them passed their best. If you watch them for Juventus the last couple of seasons, when they're without the other one, they're not the same defender. But when they're together, they're just phenomenal, like flawless. Mm. And I think that's an important thing that Southgate needs to start looking at as well. And I would say Konza and Godfrey could be a pairing that would work. Their, their talent level is very, very high their skill sets should mesh well together. Now, they won't have the benefit of playing at club level like the Italian boys, but if they can get regular minutes together for England and friendlies, and, I mean, your World the your world Cup group is is a doddle, so there's no reason Southgate can't rest Maguire and Stones for a handful of those games. He could start to build that partnership up over the next few years, get them used to playing with Trent, get them used to playing with Chilwell or Shaw, whichever is going to be the first-choice left-back. And that can become a real area of strength as well. And then all of a sudden you'll start looking at England and thinking, there's no flaw in that team. There's people that aren't world-class, but no team is world-class back to front. Mm-hmm. It's about what what you want to focus on. Who's our worst guy? What's our worst guy going to give us? Is he going to let us down or is he going to be reliable? And if he can be reliable, if your worst player is reliable and is not going to let you down, you're going to have a good team. It, it's as simple as that. If your worst guy is just reliable, will not let you down, you are going to be absolutely cooking. And that, I think, for Southgate is a big factor in what he's done with England, where mm-hmm. 
in the past, we've seen more talented English teams, you know, the, the Gerard Lampard, Beckham, those kind of teams. More talent, Terry, Ferdinand, etc. This team has a togetherness and a belief that I haven't seen from England before. I've seen the likes of Rio, the likes of Lampard, the likes of Gerard talk about how when they went with England, they'd sit apart. The United lads would sit there, the Chelsea lads would sit there, the Liverpool lads would be somewhere else. There's none of that under Southgate. This is a proper team. And it's not just a team of 11. It's a team of 23 or 26 or however many he has in the squad. They're all there for one singular purpose. That, to me, if Southgate left tomorrow, forgetting the fact that he got to a World Cup semi-final and a European Championship final, his big legacy for England will be that he broke down the barriers between the clubs. He broke away the cliques. And he made them a group. And like you mentioned, a lot of these England lads grew up together playing in the underage system. That is proving very, very beneficial. Yeah, um, that, that's that been a really huge factor. Um, I think Southgate is going to help to, to foster that. But um, I think you're right, it kind of goes deeper than that. I think it goes it goes back to underage football, like you said. I think it goes back to the way players have been developed now. And I think it goes back to the, the, the maturity of, of the individuals in question and perhaps... Um, I don't know, perhaps even a, a greater maturity of just people of that age these days. I, I don't know whether that that is a factor as well, but um, they definitely seem to be uh, less um, less cliquey um, and more kind of realizing that you know they're all kind of they're you know, the same cheesy to say they're all in this together, but they're all on, in the same boat. They're all experiencing the same things, regardless of who their club team is. They're all young footballers going through the same things, fighting for the same things. They, they seem to have, ha- have a purpose as well. Many of them have a purpose beyond the game, it seems. Um, and I think that all goes together into this melting pot of what we've seen, of, of this real genuine togetherness. And it's, it's part of the reason why I've, I've enjoyed watching this England team and rooting for them in a way that I don't think I ever really have before, at least not since I was a kid anyway. Um, I just you know, really want the best for them because they seem like such a good group. Um, and, it's, and they stand for something bigger than the result on a at the end of the game at the end of 90 minutes and I don't know maybe it's just me getting all the sentimental but <laughs> that that does matter to me and I think it has mattered to a lot of fans that I think that's been a real driving force behind the way they've connected with a lot of a lot of England fans and maybe brought some back who are a little bit dis- disenchanted for sure I think as well it does it does a good job of breaking down the barriers between the fans as well because you know, previously you had Liverpool players, Liverpool fans only want Liverpool players to do well, United fans only want United players to do well, laughing if each other's players did badly. Now they're all coming together. The United fans, the Chelsea fans, the Arsenal fans, etc., coming together to support one common team, one group of players that they can all get behind. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big thing as well. And I think we noticed it yesterday as well because I thought the atmosphere was positive for pretty much the entire game. The fans got a little bit antsy in extra time, but the tension was unbelievable, so you could understand it. But prior to that, they had been one continuous positive noise, and that's not what we've always seen either. So that's a big thing. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and again, I think it goes back to some of the things we discussed of of, of the goodwill behind this team, the, the genuine um, well wishes, and, and there's just a the desperation for not just for England to succeed, but for this group of players to succeed and what that would mean um, to them and to, and to the things they're, 
they're professing that they're the, the messages they're trying to put across. So um, yeah, it's just it's just good to have such positivity in so many ways, um, and for these, these young men to to embrace some of the things that they've embraced and take on some of the responsibilities they've taken on, um, aside from from what they're trying to do on the football pitch. I just think it's quite remarkable uh, because they don't need to do it. Um, historically, footballers haven't, not to that degree anyway, um, not so publicly and not so outwardly and not, um, not at the same time saying, you know, this is what we are, what we stand for. If you're not with us, then we don't need you kind of thing. You know, mm. they're, not, they're not there just to keep the peace and to shut up and play football. They're there to to, to express themselves to the fullest of their ability and also to, to carry a message of, of you know, of so many positive things, and and, and to to educate, and you just, you see the way some of them have interacted with the young fans as well. Uh, I just just today saw a video of Jack Grealish giving his boots to a young lad. It, it might be a fact, a case that these things will always happen. It's just now that they've got smartphones, we see it more. But it's just great to see that they seem to embrace their responsibility as well as role models. Because um, I don't think it necessarily has to be a given that footballers are considered role models. But when when they're prepared to embrace that and take on that mantle I think it's really really heartening and, and it does help uh, with, with everything we've said with with getting fans on the side and, and getting them to believe in you and believe in what, what you're what you're trying to achieve I completely agree and speaking of role models I want to speak about one we just need to take a quick break when we come back we're going to talk about a role model who graces the cover of your new book back in a minute <laughs> Right, welcome back. So I'm joined by Ryan Baldy, author of The Next Big Thing, Football's Wonder Kids and How They Lose Their Way, and the new book coming out soon, The Dream Factory, Inside the Make-or-Break World of Football's Academies. Ryan, this book is due out in August. So before we get into the book, we were talking about role models before the, the break, and on the cover of your book are two players. One is Trent Alexander-Arnold, who I think is a great role model, for local kids in Liverpool, he does a lot. But the other one is a guy that I think is a really special human being. Someone that I think all of England should be incredibly proud of. Taking aside anything that happens on a football pitch, Marcus Rashford is a genuinely remarkable young man. He is. Um, yeah, and he, he was a big... Um, a big uh, subject that I explored in my book and how he kind of came to be not just as a footballer but as a young man um, and whether or not um, the academy system and, and the people he had contact with at United played any role in that. Um, so I spoke with a few of his former coaches. I spoke with Paul McGuinness who now works for the FA. He's a long time, very well respected youth coach. He was at United for more than two decades, I think. I spoke with uh, Colin Little, who worked with him at the under-16s level, who's now a coach with the United and Ratings team. Um, but the kind of the star of, of my book, in many ways, the, the oracle um, who, who runs through this book, whose wisdom uh, runs through this book, is, is Tony Whelan, who's United's assistant academy director, a guy who's uh, in his late 60s, played for United uh, in the 60s was uh, just the second ever black player to play for United um, and he's been part of the youth setup there uh, as a coach since I think 1990 so he's got a tremendous wealth of experience he's seen a lot of great players come through he's played a part in a lot of great players come through and I spoke to him very specifically about Marcus Rashford because Tony is someone who is very cognizant of 
of the uh, the weight of his role and the responsibility he holds to the people, the young people he deals with, not just as footballers but as young people, as, as impressionable teenagers and, and young adults. Um, and it, it's hard, it was heartening to learn that many you know, of, of United's coaches are very keyed into that aspect of, of what they do. They're very aware that only a small percentage of the players they have contact with are going to make it through to the first team or even go on to have careers in the game. Um, they have a philosophy they call writer's might. Um, and it's uh, it's summed up basically by how they um, how they interact with their players and what they the values they imbue um, into them. Uh, so whenever they go on away trips, young players are asked to make a presentation to the staff at the hotel, for example, or present a pen to um, somebody from the canteen or a signed shirt to one of the the hotel workers or or the the, the head cleaner or something like that, for example, to make a speech um, that they're made to kind of be respectful and, and look after look after themselves and take care of, of their surroundings and, and make everyone they come in contact with feel a part of their team and a part of their experience. Um, they're very keen to help players who go on these foreign trips because young players now from sort of nine or ten can be travelling the world if they're part of an elite academy. They're very keen that they're not kind of blinkered and only see one astroturf pitch after another when they travel all these great distances. They go and see like a cultural centre of whatever city they're visiting. Um, so when they went to Hungary, they went and visited Pushkas' tomb and things like that. They put together little leaflets for, for the players to better understand their surroundings and pick up uh, the odd phrase and the new language and things like that. They want to make sure that the academy experience for a young United player, as much as is possible, should be enriching no matter what the outcome of it is for them. Um, so I was really keen to learn about all that from Tony because he's one of the key drivers behind it. And of course, the obvious subject then is Marcus Rashford in, in light of everything he's done. But he was very quick to say, you know, I, I don't wish to take any credit for anything that Marcus has done. And he said that it's just an honour to have known somebody like that in my life. What a special individual he is. What a special person. Um, if we played any small part in what he did, then great. But he, he the way he put it was that what he's got... What he's doing, that's God-given, that's that's natural, that was within him, that's something that he has, has taken on, that, that responsibility. And he, you know, for all the years he's been in the game, was really humbled by by having um, worked with, with, with Marcus Rashford. And that was a really kind of touching moment to to discuss with him and, and to realise just, you know, how, you know, he would, must have worked with thousands of young players um, and just to see how humbled and and gratefully he'd been to, to have the chance to work with, with Rashford and everything and seeing everything that he's gone on to do. Um, it really kind of stopped him in his tracks almost. And he, he's incredibly appreciative of this 22-year-old kid, of someone who's 68 and seen everything in the game, seen everything in life. Um, you know, he'd never seen anything like that before. Um, so, yeah, that that's all, all explored in quite great detail in the book, um, how United's Academy helped... Um, in, in some way, he sort of foster Rashford's altruistic side, his his charitable side, his, his empathetic side, um, his sense of social responsibility. How they gave him a platform to to um, to experience those things and to, and to grow those aspects of his personality. Um, I talked to Paul McGuinness about how uh, Rashford was away uh, on a trip to the Milk Cup in Northern Ireland when he was uh, an under sixteen, uh, playing that quite prestigious tournament over there. And there were queues of kids waiting for autographs with the young United players, and he was one who always kind of um, understood and appreciated his responsibility to those young fans, even at that age, and would stop for as long as it took to sign autographs and interact with them. You know, it's just a little glimpse into into the personality that and the uh, 
the aspects of his character that we've seen over the last uh, 18 months or so. Um, so yeah, it's really fascinating to learn more about him, about his his development as a person and as a footballer, because there's a lot of the technical um, details of how he was developed and you know transformed from a winger into a striker and then kind of back again in many ways. This, I was able to sort of place the reader inside the changing room uh, ahead of his debut against Michelland in 2016, was it now, 2015, um, by speaking with uh, one of Louis Van Gaal's former coaches and get very specific details of what was going on there, what was being said and how confident Rashford was ahead of that. So yeah, like you said, an incredibly special character who um, I was really pleased to be able to get a, a pretty good handle on, on where he comes from, who he is and, and what motivates him, what drives him. So... Tell me about the book. How did the idea for the book come about? Was it a follow-up to the previous book or was it just something that had always sparked a curiosity in you? Yeah, I think it was the latter. I don't remember any kind of light bulb moment where I thought this is something I really want to do, but I've always had a general fascination with youth football and young footballers who come through because there's nothing more exciting in football than seeing a, a young prospect emerge and, and uh, really thrive in the senior game. Um, there's nothing, yeah, there's nothing quite like that. So to go and um, sort of reverse engineer that and find out how how those players come to be, uh, what goes into the into the making and development of those players, and uh, what the cost is essentially. So um, the sort of mission statement of the book that I landed on eventually was to look at this new generation of English players, all the guys we've spoken about already, the Rashfords, the Alexander Arnolds, the Fodens, the Mounts. How were they created? How were they developed? But also at what cost? So. That's what I set about doing. I wasn't sure initially whether it was going to be possible because I knew it would rely rely on on the access that I needed to to really do do the do that book justice and really do the investigation justice. So it was relying on me gaining access into what seemed to me to be quite a closed off world. I don't think clubs tend to reveal too much about their academies, and certainly they don't reveal much that they don't want to reveal. Um, they, they often keep their cards quite close to their chest because it's it's it has often been a controversial area for, for some clubs um, over the years with um, welfare and things like that of young footballers and, and the, the startling numbers of players in academies and the, and the, the alarmingly high attrition rates. Um, and that was all, all part of, of, of what I delved into in the book. But what I found was that the, in, in approaching the coaches and the people who do the day-to-day work, the people whose feet touch the turf, um, they're very proud of the work they do and they're keen to to open their doors and, and open their arms in many respects to show you know, the work that they do do, that they're very proud of and how they go about their job um, because I, th- I think they don't you know, necessarily get the spotlight. Um, so they're quite keen to, to put themselves out there and show, show what, 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 what work they do and what, what good work they do and kind of redress the balance in some ways um, to kind of to, to show that for all the negativity that you hear and that you read about, there is a lot of good work being done and, and increasingly so. So... I was able to visit about a dozen or so academies up and down the country over the last couple of years, um, right from the top of the top. So from Man City and you know, United, as I mentioned, and Liverpool, um, all the way down to the likes of Shrewsbury and Colchester, um, Bury before the club went under. That was a fascinating one to go and see. And even into non-league, I went to, to, see, to visit Kidderminster and see some of the really interesting and innovative things they're doing, um, both on the football development and the educational side there. And I was able to paint a really comprehensive picture of, of like I said, of, of how these top young players have developed and the methods that go into that, um, but also um, the, the, the evils of the system 
um, and how they're being addressed, and what good work is being done, and what the gaps are that need to be need still to be filled. So it's a really kind of comprehensive study of of the academy world using specific case studies of the likes of Alexander Arnold. I was, went very specifically into how he was developed by speaking with guys from Liverpool, um, most notably um, Neil Critchley, of course, now now at Blackpool, but who was a key figure in. Alexander Arnold's development, he was able to paint a really vivid picture of, of what it was like working day to day with Trent when he was becoming a, a right back, essentially, how they got buy-in from him, how they discussed the idea with him first and foremost, and how about how they went about training him in the position and how his frustration at times would boil over and he'd send balls flying over the opposite end of the of the training field out of frustration, but how he would gradually kind of learn um, day by day and how they feedback to him. Um, so yeah, that, it was really great to be able to get those specifics about about how these superstars came to be. Um, but there are also a lot of details about how um, players who slip through the system aren't, aren't cared for adequately still, mm. um, and things like that. How some kind of murky scouting practices can go on still. Um, how agents can target parents and offer inducements. I spoke to Mason Mount's dad for the book. Um, we discussed Mason's story, Mason's journey, and he was saying how that when uh, Mason was playing for England, one of the youth teams, they were away on a trip in France, and he was approached at a bar by an agent offering him £200,000 if he could get Mason to sign with him, with his agency. Um, you know, and Tony has been around the game a long time, and he, he knew the score, he knew that, Somewhere down the line, that that money was going to come out of his son's pocket because there'd be a, there'd be a quick pro pro somewhere down the line. But you know how many parents don't have that foresight and are kind of you do have their heads turned by the offer of a new car or a, 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 a mortgage paid off or, or a cushy job or something like that. Anything, all these kind of things that go on. So yeah, it's just a really sort of comprehensive deep dive into the academy system based on a level of access um, that I don't think has been achieved before from from what I what I gather in my research. So. Um, yeah, I'm able to hopefully kind of throw open the doors to a world that's been closed off to to the average fan for for many years now. I think it's really good, and I think it's really important that this book is coming out now, especially what came to light a few years ago. Obviously, Daniel Tyler broke broke open that story, and it was horrific. And I think this book now will will show a lot of the positives about the academy system, but obviously, you're going to deal with some of the negatives as well. I think it's important that people become more aware of how academies function of, you know, like you said, such a small percentage of kids who go into academies will graduate at the far side and become professional footballers. I think it will give people more of a a balanced view and a a real life view on what it's like to come through these academies and, and how they operate and how ruthless some of them can be and what the potential pitfalls are because those are still plentiful. Yeah, absolutely. There are, um, I suppose, two kind of middle chapters in the book where I went really deeply into that aspect of it. One, looking at how uh, clubs deal with releasing their younger players. Um, I was able to reproduce an email that was sent by um, a Premier League club uh, who run a Category 1 academy. Um, the, the parent who, who passed it on to me didn't want uh, the club to be identified because his uh, his son, who's seven, is still... Uh, in the system and hoping to kind of um, work his way through it and not didn't want to burn any bridges but I was able to reproduce word for word how this club released a seven-year-old boy who had been with them since he was four um, so you know pretty much half of his little life he'd been been with mm. this club um, he broke his leg while playing for another club because before the under nines level um, 
uh, clubs can't sign their players to a, an exclusive contract. So he was actually training with four Premier League teams at the time in London. Um, he broke his leg playing for one of them, uh, was out for a few months, was promised all kinds of things at the time. So the club that he was with longest, the club in question, um, said that they would offer him physiotherapy from their expert staff and all these things that just didn't materialise in the end. Um, and then when he worked his way back to fitness within a couple of weeks to get him back without any prior warning, without any inclination that he was falling behind developmentally compared to his peers, and they received this very impersonal email. Um, the chapter that the chapter that I, that I put that email in was called Dear Parent Guardian because um, in the email, it's one of those kind of boilerplate emails where you're supposed to click oh, to replace. Yeah, but they, they never bothered to replace it and, and address it personally to, to the parent or to the kid. There's no mention of the boy's name at any point in the email. No specific feedback was given, just a list of general things that players of that age generally can, can improve on. Um, and it just in no way related to the experience that the boy had had within that academy. And it was just a, a way to illustrate just kind of how ruthless they are because the numbers are so high. Mm. I spoke to Rian Brewster's dad as well. Um, because I spoke, you know, Rian Brewster's dad and Tony Mount's dad, um, with the view to to understand what it's like to be the parent of of a young player who is highly sought after at a young age, and who all these clubs are coming for, and what that's like, and what kind of pressures they get put under. Um, he told me about how when Rian was scouted by Chelsea at the age of six, he went into a development centre. Um, I think they they have eleven development centres Chelsea around the London area. Um, most clubs tend to run at least one satellite centre outside of their main academy base. And what it helps them do is extend their catchment. So clubs are all limited to a recruitment catchment of, of a 90 minutes drive from their academy base. So if you have another um, another base somewhere else, you can extend your net essentially. Um, and that's, you know, Chelsea have 11 of these to kind of have their, their fingerprints all over London and surrounding areas. So um, Rian went into one of these at the age of six um, and his daddy, and who I spoke to, um, said to me that he, he took uh, Rian there the first week, uh, really enjoyed it. The level of coaching was great. He was quick to point that out. I think uh, Michael Beale was actually in charge at the time, who, yeah. of course, now is part of Stephen uh, Gerrard's first team staff at Rangers, and Michael has some money in for the book as well to talk about, about Liverpool and, and how they operate. Um, but, but Ian Brewster said that the second week he went back, he didn't recognise any faces of the parents and he said he, he spoke to one of the members of staff one of the coaches said what's going on everyone seems to be, seems to be different people here compared to you were here last week and he said yeah you know this is kind of how they do it they'll invite a bunch of six-year-olds in one week and then i'll just kind of discard and disinvite the ones that they want and there'll be a different crop next week and they might go through he said they might go through 350 to 400 boys each year just to find the 12 or so that will join their elite squad as you know if you want to call a six-year-old elite which is kind of <laughs> has its own connotations and, and downsides to it um as well but uh yeah they, they cycle through as many as 350 to 400 uh, just to find a dozen or so who will get into their, their main academy base so that's the kind of and those and in all the numbers that you hear quoted as well that you, you'll often hear about how only 0.5 percent of uh, of under nines will will make it through to the first team of their of the club they play for. You might hear that there are around twelve thousand boys in the in, in professional academies um, within the top four leagues. All these kind of really shocking and really high numbers and really high and alarming attrition rates. They don't account for anything below the age of one to nine either. So these these numbers that 
Rhea and Brewster's dad was speaking about. Those aren't on any of those. Those aren't accounted for in those lists. These are all boys who aren't formally signed because they can't be formally signed until they reach the age of eight years old. So these are all kind of, this is a, this is an attrition at an even younger age. This is a dream being sold to even younger kids and they're being dispensed with even less, um, even less thought in many ways and just kind yeah. of cast aside. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a big factor in one of the chapters I looked at. And another one, took it on and looked at the aftercare that's given to some of the older players who've been in the system a bit longer. And I spoke to um, a young player who played for Fulham uh, for a few years and was released at 16. And he discussed in detail his experience and what it's like because um, you go on a cycle of, 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 um, of trials after that if you want to try and stay in the game. So he was set up with a couple of trials and he, he arranged them himself. He went places like Colchester. And what he really struggled with was being told one week that he's not good enough for Fulham but then the next week also being told he's not good enough for Brentford or he's not good enough for Colchester. And it's just a compounding rejection that really, really got to him. Um, so I was looking at the effect of that and what aftercare is in place. And and there are a lot of people who are who are doing stuff off their own back. There's a guy called Paul Mitten, who's the cousin of Andy Mitten, the, 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 the Man United journalist. Yes. He, he, he played for, he, Paul Mitten played for United in their youth teams in the mid-90s he was part of the class of 93 actually he came right like, just behind the really really gifted crop um, and he fell out of the game himself he had a really difficult experience at a young age but now he's a personal trainer and he works with a lot of uh, young players who've been released by, by clubs in the North West he offers them a package of, of uh, fitness training to get them fit and in shape for the trial processes that are coming up and he also offers counselling and offers uh, football training as well he can coach them himself because he's got that experience and he believes he's, he's hit upon a package that really works and really helps these players. But at the moment, he's completely independent because every time he's reached out for, for help from the game, you know, it's some kind of link up with clubs or with, with governing bodies. He's, he's had the door shut in his face. He even told Man City about a year, a year or two ago in a meeting with them that, you know, if you're not careful, you're going to release a boy from here and he's going to go and take his own life. You know, lo and behold, a few months later, we had the Jeremy Whiston tragedy happen. Yeah. Um, and these are just really preventable things that, there, there are more instances of players who've taken their own life or fallen into really hard times, drug dealing, drug trafficking, things like that. And I put all these, these examples in, in the book. There was one boy who was released, I think, by Tottenham, who went on to commit suicide a few years later. And, and I, I was able to quote the coroner in the in the book, who, who basically said that in, in a large part, the academy system, this system that takes in so many young boys, sells them a dream and then casts them aside so easily, has a lot to learn and a lot to blame in, in these cases, um, and that you know that's from from a coroner of a, of a boy who just just killed himself after the heartbreak and never been able to overcome that. Um, I spoke to David Conn as well, the Guardian journalist who's done a lot of work in in this field, and he said we've got to look at it from the opposite end. Um, if this is a system that pulls in twelve thousand boys and only you know ninety nine point whatever percent don't get through, then it's not a dream factory; it's a crushing of dreams factory. Yeah, the attrition is what they sell. That's what they produce. the The players who get through, in many ways, are just a byproduct. So they've got to really focus more on the aftercare and of the prevention of these things than they have uh, than, than they do presently. And because that's a big, there's a big gap. It seems to me from everything that I learned from from reporting on this book and speaking to the people within the game, speaking to people within governing bodies, speaking to the head of youth at the EFL, it seems like the game feels like it's a lot closer to cracking these problems than than in reality, it is based on 
um, the people I've spoken to who've been through through the lived experience of the people who've been released by clubs, who've been on that trial process, who, who felt that amount of rejection, or the even younger boys who've been cast aside in a completely impersonal way and have been put off the game and, and wanted to have nothing to do with football for however long, and, and I just you know had young lives really disrupted and interrupted by this process and this machine, this academy machine that it's become. Um, so yeah, yeah, like. The, the downsides and the attrition has really been explored in my book and and you know a, a warts and all picture is painted uh, and juxtaposed with all the great work that has been doing that has been done being done at the same time yeah i mean you know when you hear stories about six and seven year olds i mean they should only be playing football for fun football should be something that they can love and enjoy they shouldn't have to stress about whether or not they're going to get discarded with you know a faceless email um that is tough i mean Look, there's there's certainly players who've been released from academies and gone on to other academies. And I think, you know, there, there are stories where you, you hear players that drop into non-league and work their way back up. You know, Tyron Mings is in the England squad. He was at Southampton, got released, went down to non-league, worked his way back up. And now he starts every week for Aston Villa in the Premier League and he's in the England squad. Um, you know, like Declan Rice was released by Chelsea. He's now the captain of West Ham. Ben White was released by Southampton. He's about to move to Arsenal for 50 million. Mm. But those stories are few and far between. Those are the, the small percent of those who get released that actually manage to catch on somewhere else and go on to great success. It's quite interesting when you look at the England squad. Um, you've got one player from the Arsenal Academy in Saka, two from Southampton's, uh, well, Two from Southampton's plus Ben White, who's also from Brighton's. One from Villa, one from Leicester. Two from Chelsea plus Declan Rice, who was Chelsea West Ham. Two from Sunderland. One from Leeds. One from Barnsley. Two from Liverpool. Three from Man City. Two from United. One from Spurs. One from Birmingham. And four from Sheffield United, which I think is quite fascinating. The Sheffield United's academy, uh, at a time where that, that club was in turmoil largely in the lower leagues, was able to produce multiple players who've gone on to make this England squad. Uh, Harry Maguire, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, Kyle Walker, Kyle Walker and, um, and Aaron Ramsdale. So, I mean, yeah. you know, it, it, these big academies, these mega academies like, well, like Chelsea, I mean, yeah, they're great, but they are factories. I, I do wonder if we'll see more parents begin to kind of lead their kids or make the decision to bring their kids to smaller academies. I mean, you look at Charlton has a great academy. Barnsley's had multiple quality products from there. The likes of Stones, Mason Holgate's at Barnsley as well. Um, maybe those academies can start to, to pick up the slack a bit, but there's certainly a lot more change to be done. Ryan, Amazon tells me the book is out on August the 5th. Is that correct? That's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, so it's available on Amazon right now in the hardcover version for £13.85, currently discounted from £17.99. So if you can, grab a copy on the pre-order. If not, wait till it comes out and grab it. If it's, a, if it's a patch on the last one, I can promise you it will be an excellent read. Ryan, I've taken up a ton of your time tonight. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for going through the book. I think it's going to be great. I think it's an important book that needed to be written i'm glad it was you someone that i've gotten to know uh who's done it and and you've gotten a ton of praise 
on the back cover from some of the best journalists in the country. Like I think Daniel Taylor may be the best journalist in the country. Yeah. Tony Evans is also a tremendous journalist. Like these are two of just a bunch of people who've, who've sung the praise of this book. So congrats to you for that. And, and again, thank you for your time today. Thanks. It's been a pleasure, Dave, as it always is. Thanks for having me on, mate. No problem. One last question before I let you go. Is there another book in the works? <laughs> there are a couple, yeah. Um, there are a couple. I'm actually working, yeah, yeah, I'm working on my third and fourth book simultaneously at the moment, but um, I don't know how much I should go into, <laughs> into this. No, no, that, that's fine. Um, that's fine. I could give you kind of rough themes. Um, they are a departure from my first two. They're not youth football uh, related, as the first two were. They are kind of um, team biographies, as I guess, the way you look at them. So I picked out two sort of classic teams. And I'm writing biographies of those, speaking with the players involved, the staff around the clubs, and going really, really deep dives into two, two teams from um, late '90s English football who, who remain iconic and influential. Speaking with a lot of really kind of some really big names, but also getting some really great insight from them, from people like the physios around these clubs, the, the press officers, the members of staff who were there, who saw it all from a very different perspective, and I'm. And the plan is that these I'm going deeper than than ever before into these into these two teams and the, the, their stories, how they came to be, what they achieved, and who the who the who the key players were, what drove them. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I'm working on at the moment. Really excited about it, but it's going to be um, I think 2024 before you see one, and 2023 for the first one of them. So still very much in the early days so that's why I, i'm not at liberty to to uh, disclose much more than that unfortunately at the moment no that's absolutely fine thank you for sharing that though give ryan a follow on twitter at ryan baldy fw and you can also read his work he's on the bbc uh bbc sport website you'll also find his work in world soccer magazine which you know despite having written the books that's the thing i'm most jealous about because <laughs> like ryan i grew up reading that magazine so this has been great ryan thank you so much and we'll speak again Cheers, Dave. Sports Social Podcast Network.